0: Chapter Twenty Seven of Autobiography of an Actress by Anna Cora Mullet. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. I have been for eight years an actress. In the exercise of my vocation, I have visited many theaters throughout this land and in Great Britain this fact perhaps gives me some right to speak upon the stage as an institution upon its uses and abuses for i speak in all humility it be it said from actual knowledge and personal experience my testimony has at least the value of being disinterested for i was not bred to the stage i enter upon it from the bosom of private life none who are linked to me by affinity of blood ever belong to the profession i am about to leave it of my own choice and i bid it farewell in the midst of a career which if it has reached its meridian has not as yet taken the first downward inclination i can have no object in defending the drama apart from the impulse to utter what i believe to be the truth and an innate love and reverence for dramatic art the stage is not an insignificant pastime History teaches us that it is an institution which has existed almost from time immemorial, protected by the laws, consecrated by the dramatic teachings of the divines and sages, and accepted as a mode of instruction, as well as diversion in almost all lands. It is a school most important in its operations, most potent in its admonitions, most profusely productive of good or evil influences the actor sways the multitude even as the preacher and the orator often more powerfully than either he arouses their slumbering energies elevates their minds calls forth their loftiest aspirations excites their purest emotions or if he be false to his trust a perverted instrument he may minister to viviated taste, and help to corrupt, to enervate, to debase. It is impossible, says a writer in Edinburgh Review, for a person unacquainted with dramatic representations to understand the effect produced on a mixed mass of people when a striking sentiment is uttered by a popular actor. The conviction is instantaneous. Hundreds of stormy voices are awakened, THE SPIRIT OF EVERY INDIVIDUAL IS IN ARMS, AND A THOUSAND FACES ARE LIGHTED UP, WHICH, A MOMENT BEFORE, SEEMED CALM AND POWERLESS, AND THEIR IMPRESSION IS NOT SO transient AS MIGHT BE THOUGHT. IT IS CARRIED HOME AND NURSED TILL IT RIPENS. IT IS A GERM WHICH BLOSSOMS OUT INTO PATRIOTISM, OR RUNS UP RANK INTO PREJUDICE OR PASSION. IT IS INTELLECTUAL PROPERTY HONESTLY ACQUIRED men are often amused and sometimes instructed by books but a tragedy is a great moral lesson read to two senses at once and the eye and the ear are both held in alliance to retain the impression which the actor has produced lord bacon tells us the drama is as history brought before the eyes it presents the images of things as if they are present while history treats of them as things past sir joshua reynolds says every establishment that tends to the cultivation of the pleasures of the mind as distinct from those of the sense may be considered as inferior schools of morality where the mind is polished and prepared for higher attainments disraeli the elder declares that the stage is a supplement to the pulpit where virtue, according to Plato's sublime idea, moves our love and affection when made visible to the eye. It was in the age of the wise Solon, something more than 2,400 years ago, that the rude dramatic attempts of Thespis awoke the admiration of the Athenians. The performances he instituted were a species of monologue, relieved by chorus upon this imperfect foundation the noble aeschylus built the classic drama and gained the name of the father of tragic song since that period in those countries where civilization has made the most rapid progress where the social tone has been the most elevated where taste and refinement have superseded mere sensuality the drama has held her most prosperous sway dramatic art was at its zenith in rome during the augustan age in greeks when aeschylus sophocles and euripides taught in her dramatic temples in france during the so-called golden reign of louis the fourteenth when cornell and racine wrote not merely moral but absolutely religious plays and even voltaire impressed piety into his tragedies that his other works are pervaded with an opposite spirit does not alter this fact. Dr. Isaac Watts, the Distinguished Divine, says, What a noble use have Racine and Cornell made of Christian subjects in some of their best tragedies. In England, the drama, though often lamentably misused and degraded, shed glory upon the reigns of Elizabeth and Anne, and is held in increasing honor at the present epoch the most peaceful and prosperous with which that kingdom has ever been blessed let us go back further even to the period of the first christian era and learn whether the outcry against theatres is justified by the records of antiquity there were theatres in jerusalem when our saviour came upon the earth yet by no sign does he point them out as fatally pernicious by no word no implication even does he denounce them There were theatres at damascus at ephesus at antioch at corinth at athens at thessalonica at philippi at alexandra at rome the apostles preached the gospel in those cities and reproved many vices yet no syllable of rebuke do they designate the theatre as immoral it is likely if an institution which was to perpetuate itself down to the present day, were essentially demoralizing, it would have escaped the breath of their holy denunciation. St. Paul is called the most learned of the apostles, and in his teaching he quotes from three Greek dramatic poets, from Erastus of Sicilia, from Epinides of Crete, from Menander the Athenian, thus giving his own countenance to the theatre by his familiar use of dramatic poetry. In the sacred scripture there is not a single passage which, by any fair interference, can be distorted into a condemnation of theatrical entertainments, and yet how many sincere and truth-loving Christians believe it their duty to raise a hue and cry against the stage? a distinguished clergyman of our own land lately remarked from the pulpit that he feared there were many persons even among denouncers of the drama who were beneath a taste for the stage rather than above it conveying the idea that the cultivation of those intellectual tastes and moral sympathies which find their gratification in dramatic performances was a step in moral advancement which many unsympathizing decriers of the stage would not or could not take the parables are truth enveloped in fiction the drama merely represents in actions what the parable and similar fictions inculcate by written or oral teaching the play is but the dramatized form of the poem the novel history or the parable and the mind is more vividly impressed by what it sees enacted than by what it hears related take for instance the parable of the prodigal son there can be no one so obtuse as to not admit the force and beauty of the illustration intended to be conveyed in it suppose that some dramatist to enforce the lesson of paternal forgiveness upon the minds which can be more deeply penetrated by visible symbols than by lecture throws the parable into dramatic form bringing out in appropriate language the whole moral of the story and has it represented in a theatre does the mere translation of the parable into represented action render it pernicious in this illustration we have the whole principle of the drama a few seasons ago this very parable was produced as a spectacle at drury lane under the name of aziel it met with a very decided success i am not certain but my impression is that it was translated from the french dr isaac watts the author of divine hymns thus alludes to the fitness of scriptural subjects for dramatic exposition if the trifling and incredible tales that furnish out a tragedy are so armed by art and fancy as to become sovereign of the rational powers to triumph over the affections and manage our smiles and our tears at pleasure how wondrous a conquest might be obtained over a wide world and reduce it at least to sobriety if the same happy talent were employed in dressing scenes of religion in their proper figures of majesty sweetness and terror the affairs of this life with reference to a life to come would shine brightly in a dramatic description this is high authority in favour of the drama as a strong aid to my own imperfectly expressed arguments in its defence i call a few opinions from sources which command reverence out of the multitude that might be given, did space allow. The authorities, I shall cite, are such as should make any man pause before he ventures unconditionally to denounce the stage. Marcus Aurelius, an emperor distinguished for his piety, says, Tragedies were first brought in and instituted to put men in mind of worldly chances and causalities. After the tragedy, the Comedia Ventus, or ancient comedy, was brought in, which had the liberty to inveigh against personal vices, being, therefore, through this, her freedom and liberty of speech of very good use an effect to restrain men from pride and arrogance, to which end it was that Diogenes took also the same liberty." martin luther on the subject of the stage says in ancient times the dramatic art has been honoured by being made subservient to religion and morality and in it the most enlightened country of antiquity in greece the theatre was supported by the state the dramatic nature of the dialogues of plato has always been justly celebrated and from this we may conceive the great charm of dramatic poetry. Action is the true enjoyment of life, nay, life itself. The great bulk of mankind are, either from their situation or their incapacity for uncommon efforts, confined within a narrow circle of operation. Of all amusements, therefore, the theatre is the most profitable, For there we see important actions when we cannot act importantly ourselves. It affords us a renovated picture of life, a compendium of whatever is animated and interesting in human existence. The susceptible youth opens his heart to every elevated feeling. The philosopher finds a subject for the deepest reflections on nature and constitution of man in another work martin luther says and indeed christians ought not altogether to fly and abstain from comedies because now and then gross tricks and dallying passages are acted therein for then it will follow that by reason thereof we should also abstain from reading the bible therefore it is of no value that some allege such and the like things and for these causes would forbid christians to read or act comedies the rev dr knox in his essays says there seems to me to be no method more effectual of softening the ferocity and improving the minds of the lower classes of the great capital than the frequent exhibitions of tragical pieces in which the distress is carried to the highest extreme and the moral is at once self-evident affecting and instructive the multitudes of those who cannot read or if they could have neither time nor abilities for deriving much advantage from reading are powerfully impressed through the medium of the eyes and ears with those important truths which while they illuminate the understanding correct and mollify the heart Benevolence, justice, heroism, and the wisdom of moderating the passions are plainly pointed out, and forcibly recommended to those savage sons of uncultivated nature who have few opportunities and would have no inclination for instruction if it did not present itself in the form of delightful amusement. Philip Melanchthon says on frequent reflection concerning the manners and discipline of mankind i greatly admire the wisdom of the greeks who at the commencement exhibited tragedies to the people by no means for the purpose of mere amusement as is commonly thought but much more on this account that by the consideration of heinous examples and misfortunes they might turn their rude and fierce spirits to moderation and the bridling of undue desires. These things, therefore, were acted, beheld, read, and listened to, both by the philosophers and the people, not as mere romances, but as instructions for the government of life." men were thus warned of the causes of human calamities which in those examples they saw brought on and increased by depraved desires lord bacon says dramatic poesy which has the theatre for its world is of excellent use if soundly administered the stage can do much either for corruption or discipline dr blair one of the most eminent of divines says dramatic poetry has among civilized nations been always considered a rational and useful entertainment and judged worthy of careful and serious discussion as tragedy is a high and distinguishing species of composition so also in its general strain and spirit it is a favorable to virtue and therefore though dramatic writers may sometimes like other writers be guilty of improprieties though they may fail in placing virtue forcibly in due point of light yet no reasonable person can deny tragedy to be a reasonable species of composition taking tragedies complexly i am fully persuaded that the impressions left by them upon the mind are on the whole favourable to virtue and good dispositions and therefore the zeal which some pious men have shown against the entertainment of the theatre must rest only on the abuse of comedy which indeed has frequently been so great as to justify very severe censures against it i am happy however to have it in my power to observe that of late years a sensible reformation has begun to take place in english comedy sir philip sidney says comedy is an imitation of the common errors of our life which the poet represented in the most ludicrous sort that may be so it is possible that any beholder can be content to be such a one and little reason hath any man to say that men learn the evil by seeing it so set out since there is no man living but by the force truth has in his nature no sooner seeth these men play their parts but wisheth them in pistrinum so that the right use of comedy will i think by nobody be blamed and much less the high and excellent tragedy that openeth the greatest wounds and showeth forth the ulcers that are covered with tissue that maketh kings fear to be tyrants and tyrants to manifest their tyrannical humours that with stirring the effects of admiration and commiseration teacheth the uncertainty of the world and upon how weak foundations gilded roofs are builded dr gregory in his legacy to his daughter says i know no entertainment that gives much pleasure to any person of sentiment or humour as the theatre sir walter scott says the supreme being who claimed the seventh day has his own Allowed the other six days of the week for the purposes merely human when the necessity for daily labor is removed and the call of social duty fulfilled that of moderate and timely amusements claims its place as a want inherent in our nature to relieve this want and fill up the mental vacancy games are devised books are written music is composed spectacles and plays are invented and exhibited and if these last have a moral and virtuous tendencies, if the sentiments expressed tend to rouse our love of what is noble and our contempt of what is mean if they unite hundreds in a sympathetic admiration of virtue abhorrence of vice or derision of folly it will remain to be shown how far the spectator is more criminally engaged than if he had passed the evening in the idle gossip of society in the feverish pursuits of ambition or in the unsated and insatiable struggle after gain the grave employments of the present life but equally unconnected with our existence hereafter were it not presumption i should be inclined to differ with the assertion of the last line for can the manner in which we employ a single moment here be unconnected with our existence hereafter i think not the testimony of such minds and such men in favour of the stage are at least worthy of attentive consideration and be it observed they address themselves to the most conscientious christians as more or more than to the man who makes no particular profession of religious faith the stage in almost all lands and for a long series of years has been protected and encouraged by governments would this have been the case if legislators had not found it conducive to the general well-being of all communities and even a medium of political as well as of social and moral utility calcraft in his able and scholarly defence of the stage mentions the act of parliament from which the patent of the present theatre royal in dublin mentioned in an earlier chapter of these memoirs is derived as containing these words in the preamble whereas the establishing a well-regulated theatre in the city of dublin being the residence of the chief governor or governors of ireland will be productive of advantage and tend to improve the morals of the people, etc. And the patent itself contains the royal intention and the expectations distinctly expressed in these words, that the theater in future may be instrumental to the cause of virtue and instruction to human life after which follow various restrictions forbidding any performances tending to profaneness disloyalty or indecency if then the stage be an institution acknowledged by the protection of governments as much as any which a passion for literature or art or science among men has established is there not more wisdom in helping to elevate and guide its operations than in denouncing and transducing the institution itself art is either right or it is wrong the sanctioning of voices of the ages have pronounced it to be right one branch of art includes the drama shall this branch be locked off because the canker worm of evil has entered some of its fruit like sculpture like painting like music like history like the poem the novel like everything that ministers to faculties which distinguish us from brute creation the drama is either an instrument of good or evil as it is rendered the one or the other by the use or abuse this is the veriest truism the theatre like the press is one of the most powerful organs for the diffusion of salutary or pernicious influences vicious books are often printed but shall we therefore extirpate the press plays of questionable morality are sometimes enacted but is that a cause for abolishing the stage sacrificing for a temporary abuse the great and permanent use false doctrines and what are called heresies have been preached from many a pulpit and have led to the most fearful consequences but shall the church therefore be columnated at the bar the most flagrant wrongs have grown out of the perversion of legal exposition but shall law therefore be banished from the land corrupt judges have given unjust sentences shall the bench therefore be denounced physicians have destroyed instead of preserving life shall the science of medicine therefore be set aside forgeries have been committed shall penmanship therefore wholly be forbidden and yet if in one case abuse counteract use why not in all a royal governor of virginia sir william berkeley said i thank god that there are no free schools nor printing, and I hope we shall not have them these hundred years, for learning has brought disobedience and heresies and sex into the world, and printing has divulged them, and libels against the best governments. God keep us from both. This assertion is literally true, but the royal governor looked on what side of the question. THE INVEYORS AGAINST THE THEATERS DO PRECISELY THE SAME. BECAUSE THERE ARE ABUSES, MOST UNQUESTIONABLY SEPARABLE FROM THE USE, IS THAT A WISE OR JUST ARGUMENT FOR THE HOLY INDIGNATION OFTEN EXPRESSED AGAINST THE THEATER AND ITS UPHOLDER ABOUT AS WISE AND JUST AS SIR WILLIAM BERKELEY'S OBJECTIONS TO THE DIFFUSION OF KNOWLEDGE. Reform the errors of the stage if you would serve the cause of human progress. No manager will produce plays that do not draw. It lies then with audiences to pronounce what representations shall receive their suffrages. The drama's laws, the drama's patrons make. But there lately have been a marked improvement in the class of plays offered to the public the manager would be a bold one who at the howard athenium in boston or at niblo's in new york would produce a play of decided immoral tendency his theater would soon be closed even without any loud denunciations from outraged supporters the community would forsake the establishment and leave the beggarly account of empty boxes to proclaim their disapproval Numerous other theatres in this country, as in England, are becoming more and more cautious in their choice of plays to be enacted within their walls. In England, the voice of the licensor is a check upon the representation of immoral dramas. In this country, the voice of the people is a far more powerful organ than that of any royal licensor in exerting a similar control. Passages, even in Shakespeare were listened to by audiences a few years ago without manifestations of displeasure, are now entirely omitted by actors, and, if spoken, would inevitably be hissed. I do not mean to assert that there are not passages left which ought to be expunged, but I believe that, in time, they will not be tolerated. And I know that is the fault, not of the actor, but of the audience, if their ears are ever offended." The actor is supposed to speak only what is set down for him, and, according to strict regulations of some theatres, he would be heavily fined if he deviated upon his own responsibility from the text. There are plays in abundance which the most pious parent may take his children to witness with profit. Men who have won the highest distinctions, not through their genius only, but for the piety and purity of their lives have devoted their talents to writing for the stage. More than 200 English clergymen have been dramatic authors. The Archbishop Gregory Naziazin wrote sacred dramas from the histories of the Old and New Testament which were enacted upon the stage at Constantinople. From the stage, pagan plays were consequently banished. Apollinaris, Bishop of Laodicea, wrote scriptural tragedies and comedies. In ancient times, mysteries and moralities were not only written, but acted by the clergy. Sir Thomas More, the renowned statesman, both wrote and acted interludes, as they were called. Milton wrote the tragic poem of Samson Agonistes, and the mask of Arcades and Comus. The latter still keeps on the stage. In the preface to his Samson Agonistes*, he writes, Tragedy, as it is anciently composed, hath ever been held the greatest, moralist, and most profitable of all the poems. Hitherto, men in the highest dignity have labored not a little to be thought able to compose a tragedy. Dr. Edward Young, the author of Night Thoughts, wrote the tragedies of the Revenge, Brasiris, and the Brothers. The latter was enacted for the express purpose of adding the proceeds to the Fund for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Lands. The eloquent Rev. C. Maturin is the author of Bertram, a favorite character of many distinguished tragedians, also of Manuel, Fradolfo, and Osmond the Renegade. The Rev. H. Milman, author of History of Christianity, wrote fazio in which the genius of miss o'neill shone preeminent. he also wrote belshazzar's feast the fall of jerusalem and the martyr of antioch the rev dr crowley wrote catiline a comedy which has been represented with great success entitled pride shall have a fall the pious addison wrote the tragedy of cato the comedy of the drummer and the opera of Rosamond, dr johnson wrote the tragedy of irene coleridge wrote two tragedies remorse and Zapolia, and translated schiller's wallenstein thompson goldsmith miss hannah moore miss joanna bailey and miss mitford have all contributed to the drama to these did space permit i might add the names of many other authors as noted for their religious attributes as their great gifts the soundest philosophers have declared that intellectual recreation was needful to the well-being and mental health of man and they have pronounced the stage to be one of the highest sources of such recreation that rational amusement is a necessity of man's nature imperatively demanded pindar and aristotle have given their testimony the former says rest and enjoyment are universal physicians the latter that it is impossible for men to live in continual labor repose and games must succeed to cares and watching To unite amusement with instruction is to give relish to nourishment the man whose energies are worn out with daily struggles in life when he sees portrayed the sterner battle of some other life on the mimic world called the stage Forgets the cares that press too heavily on his own heart and paralyze its strength. He passes out of the narrow circle in which his selfhood is hourly bound. His faculties are quickened and refreshed by listening to sparkling wit. The finest chords within his bosom are stirred by the breath of the poet's inspirations. Emotions, devotional, heroic, patriotic, or soothingly domestic, sweep over his prostrate spirit and lift it up from the contact with the dust of realities he returns to his labors invigorated strengthened or elevated by the relaxation in our working-day community it is to such men that the theatre performs one of its chief usage but there are other uses which address themselves to the mass pope tells us to make mankind in conscious virtue bold live o'er such scene and be what they behold for this the tragic muse first trod the stage, commanding tears to stream through every age. And even Stern Crab has said Yet virtue owns the tragic muse a friend, Fable her means, morality her end. She makes the vile virtue yield applause, And her own scepter while they break her laws, For vice in others is abhorred by all, And villains triumph when worthless fall shakespeare the great mind reader the most thorough grasper of all subtleties of human characters wrote no fiction when he said guilty creatures sitting at a play have by the very cunning of the scene been struck so to the soul that presently they have proclaimed their malfactions The annals of the stage contain a number of startling instances where this has been literally the case. A remarkable one is recorded in the life of the English actor Ross. In my own comparatively brief experience upon the stage, I have been an eye-witness to salutary effects of this description. One occasion I have related in an earlier chapter of these memoirs. If the acting of a play has been instrumental in causing joy among the angels of heaven over one sinner that repenteth, what stronger proof can there be that the theatre is a useful institution? If the lingering abuses in our theatres are to be reformed, it can only be done by the mediation of good men, not so absolute in goodness as to forget what human frailty is, who discarding the illiberal spirit which denounces without investigating will first examine the reasons of existing abuses then help to remedy them by their own presence amongst the audience that the very worst abuse with which any theatre can be taxed may be abolished has been proved at the howard athenium in boston the museum and indeed all the theatres in that city for five years and at the Niblos in New York for a period even longer. I allude to the demoralizing effect of allowing any portion of the theater to be set aside for the reception of a class who do not come to witness the play. I believe there have been other theaters in this country where this outrage upon morality is not tolerated, and the establishments have been as prosperous as those above mentioned but this is a difficult topic for a woman to touch upon i cannot close these remarks upon the drama and the stage without a few words on the true position of actors on this subject very erroneous impressions exist in the minds of those who do not frequent theatres they are apt to look upon the actor as belonging to a distinct portion of the community dwelling on the outside of a certain conventional pale of society which he is allowed to enter only by courtesy unless it is broken through by the majesty of transcendent talents let us examine his social and political state in ancient times when the stage first sprang into existence of an actor was looked upon as honorable among the greeks some of the highest offices of the state were held by players aeschylus who framed the regular drama held command at Marathon under Militaides. He was at once actor and author. Sophocles was a man of high rank and served under great Pericles. He was raised to the office of Archon. He appeared in his own tragedies and sang on stage the music of the lyre. Euripides, who also acted in his own productions, was a distinguished officer. The actor, Neoptolemus, was also a tragic poet, was an ambassador in an important mission. Aristodemus was also employed on a momentous embassy. At the solicitation of Demosthenes, he received the reward of a golden crown bestowed for the faithful administration of public affairs. Cicero himself was the intimate friend of Roscus, his early tutor the great orator says of the equally great actor the excellences of roscius became proverbial the greatest praise that could be given to men of genius in that particular profession was that each was a roscius in his art lilius called the wise and scipio africanus the younger were the warm friends and associates of the actor terence Julius Caesar mentions Meander and Terence with respectful admiration. The noble Brutus thought it was no waste of time to journey from Rome to Naples solely to see an excellent company of comedians. Their performances delighted him so much that he sent them to Rome with letters to Cicero. They were honored with the latter's immediate patronage. Actors in all ages have been the especial favorites of monarchs and high dignitaries in modern times from mrs siddons down to the present day they have in common with other artists been received in the highest society and been treated with marked distinction the stage at this moment is graced by members of the profession who have been honored guests of nobles and whom the magnates of more than one land have been proud to welcome as their firesides the odium which has attached itself to some whose talents were as a brilliant setting which lacked the center gem of paramount value can cast no more real blemish upon those who have not merited the same approach than the despotism of one king can darken the reign of his successors if i have somewhat warmly pleaded the cause of the stage and the actor I hope my testimony has been given as though I stood in the courts of Areopagus, where no flowers of rhetoric were permitted to adorn and falsely color the pleader's simple statement. I have looked upon the citation of facts as my strongest arguments. These, I think, will be patiently heard and justly weighed by the impartial tribunal of the American public, before which I stand to add my feeble voice to those already raised against the wrongs received by the stage, the drama, and the profession. To the members of that profession, whose labors and honors I shall soon cease to share, I would say, in bidding them farewell, that there are many amongst them whom I esteem, some to whom I am warmly attached, and more whose career I shall watch with anxious interest. I would beg them to believe that i sympathize in their toils i comprehend their sacrifices i appreciate their exertions i respect their virtues and i cherish the hope that in ceasing to be ranked amongst their number i shall not be wholly forgotten by them in writing these memoirs although they are expressly designed for publication I have endeavored to divest myself of all remembrance of the reader, in the same degree that I should mentally abstract and separate myself from an audience while interpreting a character upon the stage. By accomplishing this desired end, I have been enabled to give a more unreserved transcript of events than would have been otherwise possible in an autobiography there seems a degree of egotism in the constant use of the first person singular from which i have sought in vain some method of escape for any consequent trenching upon the borders of good taste i hope to be pardoned as for an unavoidable literary trespass i have endeavoured to write a simple and faithful narrative unambitious unembellished nothing extenuated and, assuredly, setting down nothing in malice. It is for the public to judge how imperfectly I may have executed my task. I lay down my pen with a sense of relief, which is, in itself, a Gurdjian, for I have fulfilled my promise. Leave here the pages with long musings curled, and write me new my future's epigraph. End of Autobiography of an Actress or Eight Years on the Stage by Anna Cora Mowat